Welcome to QRD Radio, everybody. Today we have Nathan Amundsen of Ribulets. I've been in touch with him probably since around 1999 when he was doing a zine called Pretty Bruises that he interviewed me in. Done a lot of musical collaborations and such over the years, and he's really uh, helped me to keep working on music that, you know, I always have doubts about my ability, and then he'll be like, hey, can you guest star on my record and i always feel like why would you ask me instead of somebody else but he does so welcome to the show nathan thank you hey thanks so good to be on here so i don't i don't really know the how i got on your radar was it through that that drone on email group or something it it might have been yeah um i don't really remember i remember somehow getting QRD the zine and then um getting interested in your early Remora stuff like the ambient drones for one guitar and Amers and Aneron and those cassettes. But I, I don't remember precisely when we started talking. Like do you think you got those when like from a tour? No. Or anything? No, I I know we were like corresponding for a bit before we met because the first time we met in person, you came to Minneapolis. Yeah, 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 and you stayed at at my place there. I remember that. Yeah. Well, I just didn't know. Like, you know, it's not like QRD is so widely available. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, I really don't know. I I mean, I was a lot more into, well, there was a lot more of a zine sort of scene back then. So yeah. I would have kind of had my feelers out for anything like experimental or drone, covering that kind of stuff. What, what was called post-rock at the time, which is kind of different from what they call post-rock now, but it was basically anybody using like rock instruments to do experimental music cranky at that time was a big deal for me like Le Bradford and Stars of the Lid and I was looking for other people doing that kind of stuff and I, I would guess I found you through that somehow might have been the drone yeah. on yeah you know who, uh, who else it could have been uh, E. Katie Holmes uh, because oh, okay. me and her were buddies for quite a while uh, prior to that I yeah think. that could have well been it she was around she actually took some of the first promo photos for for me for rivulets at the very very beginning when it was a duo so yeah i was i was hanging out with her a little bit so do you consider rivulets a band or a project and has that changed over the years how you feel about that yeah it's kind of a curse (laughs) it it's kind i mean i think i make it a lot harder to explain in my head than it actually is but basically like I, i wanted a name like swans which could be anything it could so it's basically me and whoever i want to play with or sometimes nobody i want to play with sometimes it's just me live for the past decade or so it's it's been a band i have the same bassist and drummer that plays with me but yeah i mean i guess it's 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 a band where i'm the only constant member because you've been doing some stuff under your own name just uh know how long you've been doing that maybe five ten years that you've had a had an occasional release that says nathan instead of rivulets what's the is that some kind of contractual thing or 
No, no, it's just, I think rivulets kind of means more like song-based stuff. I'm going to be singing and there's going to be some kind of a song. And then when I do this kind of random stuff that just interests me and probably me only, um, like instrumental, experimental stuff, I tend to put it under my own name so that somebody doesn't pick up a, a rivulets record and, you know, get 43 minutes of noise. I don't know. Maybe that would be funny, but it would also probably turn some people off. So, yeah, I just do mostly like instrumental stuff under my own name. And then I keep the song based stuff to rivulets. I mean, some of the rivulets stuff gets kind of out there, you know, like like specifically like when you called and were like, I would like you to make something that sounds like this. And so I did a ambient structure and then that appears as rivulets on the on the record, you know, the greenhouse yeah. piece. Yeah, it's kind of a um, like a pause, like an instrumental break or something, like a seg between songs. I'll still do stuff like that. The last record um, in our circle has like a little instrumental piece between like the A and B side, somewhere around there, kind of to break it up. So I know uh, early on you were doing doing uh, fiction writing too. Or is is that still something you're into at all? Or not really. I was. I was listening to your your interviews with um, people in the comics world, and I was thinking, huh, I wonder if I would write a script. Like, it kind of made me think about fiction for the first time in a while. But yeah, I've I've mostly just been doing music, and then I'm I've, I've been taking notes for a few years for some sort of like nonfiction book, but I'm not really sure what it is or if I'm just trying to remember stuff. I'm not sure that it's something I'll ever like put out. It's more like me trying to make sense of my own life kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, the catharsis of, yeah. of analysis. Yeah, because you turned me back on to uh, Proust or Proust, however you're supposed to say it, the, uh, that idea of doing the inter- doing the the answering the same questions multiple times during your life and looking at them. Um, yeah. how your answers changes change and everything which it was funny because when you sent it to me i was like oh this is interesting and i was like well, where'd you hear about this and you're like you you sent me this link like 20 years ago i was like oh okay that seems about right i think we both when i had a my zine and then i noticed you do it in like a lot of your series like the guitarist series or something where you'll you're more or less um, I did this when I did the low issue of Pretty Bruises, where I interviewed them each individually, but basically asked them the exact same questions and see how their answers differ. I've always thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, with the, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know if you've been listening to um, the Mike Watts podcast, but it's it's interesting, like, you know, you like his, his big interest seems to be like the, the formative years of, of somebody musically. And so it's always interesting, even though he asks the same questions, you know, it's like to totally different people. And, you know, like the questions about like that don't normally come up with most people's interviewing where they're like, OK, how did your dad influence your music? What what did you what did he have? to offer you um oh, because yeah. like i know your dad your the the main rivulets guitar was your dad's guitar originally right that yeah i mean 
Yeah, I still have it. It's like a an early '70s Takamine acoustic. Yeah, for I kind of I I had a couple modifications to it, but not much. Just I had a pickup put in it, and I changed the heads, the tuning heads, and other than that, it's been the same guitar. It w- I think it's the only guitar used on the first album, and then live for the first several years it was the only guitar i had i didn't even have a second guitar for probably the first four or five years of rivulets so now when you're so i know you have the the two guys that are the main members with you or what have you but i mean you're not living in the same cities as either of them so for your songwriting process it's just it's just you right and then they just do you tell, give them direction or you're just like, okay, here's what I got, do whatever you want? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah, so I, I write the songs and then when I feel like I want to make a record, I'll usually have a batch of songs or most of the record written. And then I, I definitely have ideas for how I want the drums and the bass to go, but I chose those guys because I like what they do and what they bring to the table so i really don't i don't have a ton of input like i mean obviously they can tell what the tempo is and figure out what key it's in or whatever because i sure as hell can't tell them that but they kind of bring their own thing to it and and that's cool because that's what i chose them for but as far as like the actual writing of of the music and the lyrics the the core thing that like i could go out and play solo I write all that stuff. They have input to you, like as far as like you're like, okay, here's a batch of songs I'm thinking about working on. Do they say like I think this would be a little better this way or that way, or it's? No, they've never really done that. Um, I'd say on on the last one there was there were several songs where I would just kind of like step out of the studio for a minute like have a cigarette or whatever and just be like just put some stuff on here and I, I remember Nathan the drummer did a bunch of percussion stuff and I was a little more free free with that like just see what they would come up with yeah it's I mean we work pretty well together so when back when you were when you did debriefment um I know you got a ton of us to come up and and work with you was that just because you had lost the previous bass player? Or was that something you were thinking about doing for a while? Or how did that all come actually come to fruition? Yeah, you know, it's sort of crazy that that happened. And I that could I, it couldn't happen now because people have commitments and stuff. But I just kind of shot for it. I was just like, who, largely, like, who am I listening to and who's doing cool stuff? And I... That one, I actually went into a a studio and recorded demos of all the songs and then sent those demos out to everybody so that they had a couple weeks or a month or whatever to figure out their parts. And then we all kind of convened at Sacred Heart in Duluth, which is this old deconsecrated church that has a studio in it now. Everybody kind of brought their ideas to, to that one. But it wasn't, let's see... The very first bassist of Rivulets was never on any records. I think he might be on the demos thing a little bit. I don't remember. I don't think so. And then he left, and then the guy who plays bass on the first Rivulets record, I actually ended up firing that guy. 
and then so I really what rivulets was re- really already solo by the time I started to do debridement and I was just like well who's out there doing cool shit that I, I want to hear on my record and I was really lucky that everybody came through you know later on you you on and off like like uh, I really like oh gosh I can't even remember the name of it the one that you did in um in Toledo oh you've got your own the yeah in- yeah thanks so that was that was 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 that just you on as far as what's recorded or that one is me and Jessica Bailiff and this guy named Jesse Edwards and I went out to Toledo to make that that this guy was living in this guy Jesse was living in this old nunnery that had been converted to like affordable basically uh, what are they called SROs single resident occupancy units where like they're actually pretty big for an SRO but where like the bathrooms are down the hall but you have your your little room with your kitchen and stuff so we recorded all that in there yeah so that one is that one is just the three of us just Jesse mostly doing recording I think he did a couple instruments I'd have to look at the credits Um, but most instrumentation on that is either me or Jessica Bailiff I know that one too. That that one's recorded in the computer, and you're usually you're recording on tape. But I always felt like that one somehow feels as warm, if not warmer, than a lot of the stuff that's on tape. Kind of mysterious in that way. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I would. Yeah, I was totally in the dark about any sort of computer recording. That point, I'd only done like I'd started out doing as you know, like stuff on a four track recorder, a cassette recorder. And then the first couple ribs albums were done to reel to reel tape, a half inch or one inch tape. And then, yeah, that was the first one where, and the only way that it was done on computer was that Jesse was basically engineering it. I think he was using Cubase, if I remember, but I, I couldn't make any any sense of it but he recorded it and if it sounds good it's probably because it was all recorded in this really warm like wooden room of this old nunnery and he was just able to sort of capture that without any interference i'm not sure i'm glad it it's you think it sounds good i remember talking to jesse or or jessica about it one time and they were like there was like one one computer plugin that was like super instrumental to him for everything that he recorded and it was like called like true tape or something that it was like a tube tube amp tube emulator or something maybe true tube i can't remember I'm sure oh. it doesn't exist anymore because that's like 20 years ago yeah i don't know if cubase is even a thing anymore is it i haven't heard about it i don't know i don't know i feel like maybe it's a maybe it's a thing but maybe it has evolved into have a different name yeah that would make sense though i mean if there is some early like plugin that just made things sound like they're going through a tube. That would make sense. Going through tubes, yeah. tube it up. So what are you doing to record now? Uh, voice notes. I just do voice notes on my on my phone. If I do more music, like a record record, I would go into a studio because I just always I always prefer that. If I if I do solo stuff, like I've had Pro Tools and. Garage band and all that stuff, and some of the stuff like uh, of this album of 
instrumental guitar stuff called Western Songs, and that I just recorded at my apartment in Denver on um, on a little MacBook with Pro Tools. So I can do that, but but if I'm singing and writing and dealing with like other parts flying in and stuff, I prefer to have an engineer, and that's that's more like the case with a Rivulets album. So I'm not really, I haven't really done any recording lately except for writing down lines for lyrics and like i'll do voice notes on my apps so on my phone of melodies or song ideas but i i think if i was to do another record i would definitely do it in a studio so with all the voice notes things i assume you're somewhere in the same place as me where it's like i haven't done a record in a really long time now and when i go to my little demos file it's like oh there's like 250 things in here right now yeah um so what do you how do you how do you end up figuring out what you want to actually use from that dense uh source of material well i don't have hundreds so that helps but i do go through them um every once in a while and just kind of ruthlessly cut out anything that i think is lame because a lot of time, like when I'm thinking of something, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Or that's a cool turn of phrase or whatever. And then I'll look at it months later, just in black and white on the little text file or whatever, if it's lyrics, say, and just be like, that's trash. And I'll just delete it. So I, I'm i pretty... Abortive. I'm, yeah, pretty abortive, pretty brutal with my own self-editing when it comes to that stuff, I'd have to look. I would bet you I probably have less than 40 voice notes. And of those, they could probably all be condensed into maybe like six or eight songs. I don't know. I should I should look down. I mean, who knows? There might be a whole record in there, and I just haven't figured it out yet. So you're talking about having them written down. So do you have them written down, or you have them sung, or...? I have both. So I have a... On the notes app on my phone, I have lyrics and titles and things. And then the voice recordings app, I have actually like things that I'm singing or, well, they're all singing, whether it's like actual words or just melodies and things. Yeah. So you haven't really messed with getting the, the music apps, like the synthesizers and stuff for your phone and playing around with the things like that? No. And I increasingly, I, I really don't like being on my phone. I don't even really like having it around me, so <laughs> I, I definitely want to don't want to do any sort of music production or anything that involves staring at my phone. Past six months or so, with the job I currently have, I've really um, embraced that I can work on music on my phone during my break times. It's interesting because it's like uh, quit my last straight job in 2008, so this is the first time I'm working for someone other than myself since then and so it's, i'm just like man if the technology had been there for the 15 years i was working for other people i would have gotten to be so productive yeah but so what do you i mean just out of curiosity what what do you use to work on stuff on your breaks um so there's there's a one that i use a lot called groove pad but that's what i'm using for the dance music that it's Basically, it's based on, you know, the Akai MPC Music Production Center, or I'd say more so the MPC than the Roland Groove Box. And it's 
it's funny because I, I played with both of those some in the 90s. And at that time, I uh, disliked how, how easy it was on those to make music in a way. Mm. And um, I don't know, I've had this weird relationship with music where I feel like in a way, like if it comes easy, easily, then it's it's not really work and it's not worth doing. And now I kind of am closer to the idea if it comes easily, it's because it's something you're good at. Yeah. And so that probably means you should do it. So I use that. Um, I just got this this uh, granular synth called Grainstorm. And uh, that one, you just, um, it's it just has like, you know, they're fake knobs because it's in your phone or whatever. But it's just, you uh, take a sound source and you really just mutilate it. But I've been doing that with like uh, where my current work is, is is close to a building that I own. And I can, so sometimes I'll walk there during my lunch break and I'll play the piano for 20 minutes. And it's cool. And so like if you run the piano through that granular synthesizer, they say it sounds good, is inaccurate, but <laughs> it um it makes it makes it sound a little more interesting than somebody that doesn't really know how to play the piano playing the piano. Right. Like uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to that caretaker guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of it kind of adds some of that like like I mean you can you can turn it turn that granulator up to full and it does not even sound like there's a real instrument, you know, it's just totally caustic noise. But if you if you're subtle with it, it it does something like kind of like where the caretaker is coming from as far as like like it being like a haunted piano instead of kind of like sounding piano. like old 78s or something yeah yeah, yeah. exactly That's... and then i i do a lot of stuff too where it's just like so I'm, I'm working at an iron foundry and there's all these weird industrial noises with equipment that's breaking down and stuff and so i'll uh, i'll record that and then you can uh I'll, I'll take that i'm still using paul stretch i don't know if you remember that software yeah so i'll uh record some stuff on my phone then i'll take it into my laptop and i'll uh play with it there what i'm doing a lot of the time is during my 15 minute breaks and every once in a while like if a piece of equipment goes down i suddenly have a spontaneous extra five minute break or whatever Right. So I'm doing uh, doing the recording more in the five and fifteen minute breaks, and then in the thirty minute break, I can actually break out my laptop and do some engineering towards that. And that's um, yeah, do some like processing and editing and yeah. stuff. Yeah, because I think I've done like six or seven releases in the seven or eight months since I've been there. And it's wild. Yeah, it is like like I'm in this really productive period where I've like kind of figured out what's what works for me and is keeping my interest for being able to do things. And also part of that, too, I think, is the ability to ignore the fact that that people aren't giving it that much attention. Like I'm also like the podcast, I record it while I'm driving to and from work and then I. And then I edit it once again during my 15 and 30 minute breaks. Um, Man, you're fast. (laughs) 
when I did my podcast or our podcast, uh, it took me like four or five times longer than the podcast itself to edit it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like it definitely like an episode is 35 to 40 minutes usually. And it probably does take me two and a half hours to uh, get it done. But my goal with QRD the whole time with doing the interviews, I mean, starting pretty early on, I realized the part of your job as an interviewer is to make the subject seem more interesting and intelligent than they often actually are. Mm-hmm. So you need to take out some of the ums and pauses and little oh, yeah. repeats and stuff. Yeah, I did. I, that was a large part of it. I think towards the latter episodes, we only did 10, but I got a lot more forgiving with it. But the first few episodes, it was like every um or uh, I took out if the pause was too long or awkward, I would shorten it. I was just and then I started listening to stuff like, I don't know. I mean, you don't need to name them, but some of the biggest like podcasts out there just sound like shit. Like it's literally like the the dude just pressed record and they yeah. talk three and a half fucking hours and it sounds like shit the whole time and it has bajillions of listeners and that's when I got to be kind of like well I guess people don't really care about sound quality like they're willing to forgive the ums and the weird awkward pauses and the so I think if I were to do it again now I would be a lot faster at editing so just let a lot of that stuff go yeah yeah I don't know if you ever read the first issue of QRD with the Lycia interview but I transcribed all transcribed all of the ums and uh and all that stuff yeah I did that you and I were texting and I found this old website where it might have been it must have been just before I started my paper zine where I um interviewed low and yeah I did that too like all the ums errs as like I literally transcribed them like um not great not great it it gets weird to me because I remember like as a kid I think it's proper to call us kids in that era the the zines that would have the article style interviews just like being like so pissed off you know, like I'm like, I'm not getting any real information about this band that I care about from this thing. I'm just it right. may as well just be a record review or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a, in a way it comes from Hunter S. Thompson and Lester Bangs. But it's like most of those people are not Hunter S. Thompson or Lester Bangs. Right. Yeah, most people. Yeah, most people benefit from some editing for sure. Definitely when you're talking about like like this sort of thing, like the podcast or the written word, like interviews, it definitely, I mean, just cleaning it up because it actually is more like I was looking at that interview from before and it's more distracting outside of my like personal, like the time machine of like being put right back into that space and time and just trying to read it objectively as a reader. It's like, why are all these ums and ers and uh <laughs> Like, why did you do that? That it that doesn't help anything. That's distracting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I do feel like it puts some of the humanity in there. When you're speaking, 
you sort of tune those out like you don't they don't really register but if someone transcribes them and you're reading it as a line it is it's kind of jarring yeah i i did an interview with uh low years ago where he talks about i asked him why they um i think at that time their lyrics would appear in the um in whoever it was in france that was putting out their records they would have ly- the lyrics written down in the liner notes but oh. in america they did not and yeah. i i asked them about it and it was like uh the label in France wanted to do that because people like had trouble went, went figuring out what exactly what they were saying and wanted to know what they were saying because that wasn't their native language versus he didn't want it in the regular ones because he didn't like the idea of the lyrics and the music being separated in that way. It's like if you are reading the lyrics to Led Zeppelin, it's total crap, you know, obviously. But oh, then... Yeah. Within it, within the context of Led Zeppelin, those lyrics work. Right. Yeah, I kind of feel like everybody's lyrics look pretty stupid on paper, and that's mostly why. Same reason I haven't done it. I think the last, the last Rivulets record was the first one that actually has lyrics printed in it. Because yeah, I've always been the same, and it's also like nothing is that literal. You know what I mean? I I don't I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to explain, but not, the there's more meaning to me in in the sound of the way that it's sung and the phrasing than the actual words. I don't, there's a yeah. few. I mean, you've got like Leonard Cohen, or even like a lot of the time, I'd I'd like to know a little bit more about what P.J. Harvey is saying, but for the most part, like. It's more like the vibe or the feel of the song and where it's taking me. I don't I'm not too hung up on like the specifics lyrics. Yeah, like if you were reading the lyrics to Yuri G by PJ Harvey, that would really have nothing to do right. with that song. Or Fifty Foot Queenie. I'm pretty sure that doesn't work if you try to translate that as poetry or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Her new one is really good. I was just listening to that the other night. I haven't I haven't listened to that yet. I'm I'm I was really big on White Chalk. Yeah, me too. Um, and then uh she did this is her second one since White Chalk, right? I think so. She's one of those that I I'll like skip a couple records and then I'll dip back in and yeah. I don't necessarily keep track of everything but yeah i i think i'm the same like white chalk was the last one i was really into and then this new one i checked out and i really like it too there's yeah there's probably one or two records between white chalk and this one also i guess i guess before we wrap wrap up the interview and stuff i wanted to talk about vlor a little which you have been part of a lot of the time which uh, vlor was originally my high school band and then um what the way the way it came to what it currently is or whatever is uh like it was my high school band then it broke up um a few years later me and the guitarist did stuff just as a duo we released that on cassette on silver and then i didn't talk to him for years and years and the digital revolution came was coming along and so i uh was switching over all of those cassettes onto uh into mp3s and stuff for people 
Right. And I was like, you know, so you're you're touching it up, you're mastering it a little bit, doing some more EQ. And I was like, oh, man, this I really miss this sound. I feel like there's space for me to work in it still. And so I just wrote some some little parts in that style and just the way I've been doing it is I'll I'll write some parts and I just send them to friends and I'm like just add whatever you want and then the where it gets really weird and interesting to me is so I'll just send like a batch of like 20 pieces to a dozen different people and everybody adds whatever they add without hearing anything that anybody else does yeah and yeah. so and so it's like uh you don't you don't know what all this nobody knows what all the stuff is until after i've mixed it you know and right to me that that project's fun and interesting and right now i'm working on on some more stuff i think i might have sent you some of the demos i was working on already hoping like that you'll be on that again yeah i'm into it okay cool it's cool because it's kind of like exquisite like exquisite corpse style where it's not like uh like debridement when we were all in the studio together kind of bringing what we brought but also like oh so you know john de is doing this thing i'm gonna put this piano thing you know like building on what each on other each other doing. yeah everybody's completely blind to what the other person's doing so it it must be kind of crazy to put it all together and be like all right how are we yeah, gonna yeah well you know i mean at at the time i did both of the the main floor records i probably was recording straight into the computer but i wasn't i wasn't using any metronome ish technology or anything to get the timing right and it was just so it was a, it was i i was using a computer for decades before i realized how to use it properly and not just using it as a four track you know like like four track cassettes the technology i grew up on and it was just like okay i, I screwed up the vocal therefore i need to redo the whole vocal and i lost the verse that i liked you know because on four track cassette you're really limited so that's just a fact that the idea of punching in on a four track i mean i know you technically can do it but ain't nobody ain't nobody doing that but i feel like now i've Deal changer for me was uh, Ryan McKenzie of Electric Bird Noise. I worked with him on a record. And two biggest things that I got out of that experience was, one, the right microphone for my voice, which is a, a floor tom mic, is the best microphone for my voice. It's just And so that's cool because it's only $200 instead of $2,500. Right. And, and then there's this app that he uses it's just called tap tempo and you just like you know hit the hit a space bar on your keyboard a few times and it tells you what the tempo is and then you can you know make a click track at the right tempo and previously i was like i could never play with a click track because i could never figure out like i knew what my timing was supposed to be and i couldn't figure out how to get the click track to be the same timing as what i was but with that you know, it's like, oh, 114. Okay. Like, there's no way I would have intuitively known to go with 114 beats per minute. Right. So, and it's such that, an odd number. Like, why not oh. 115 or 120? No, it's 114. 
Yeah. And it's, it's weird to me because it's like, if you're, if you have the way that you think something is supposed to sound speeding up by like speeding up from like 114 to 120, it's, it's a totally different vibe. And it's like, just like totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, people say that about like the Robert Johnson recordings. They say that the tape is sped up and that's why it sounds so haunting and his voice is so high. Um, I don't I don't believe that. But there are definitely some nerds like on the Internet that you can look up where they've like slowed it down so that he sounds, quote unquote, normal. And uh, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, just changing changing the BPM by a couple beats makes a huge difference. Yeah, on on that changes the tuning of his guitar and everything then too. And is is it what they're saying is it puts it in like the four forty A instead of the four forty four A or something? Yeah, totally. Like he's just sped up enough that he sounds like that gonna keep moving. Like that that high like whereas I mean Are they slowing it down like just that little bit, like four forty four to four forty, or they're changing it like from a 45 to a 33 and a third probably somewhere in the middle yeah i'm not super experienced with that stuff in fact the only time the only time i've ever played to it i've only played to a click on one song ever and i didn't like it so i'm probably not the best person to ask about it but i i know that uh it does make a, dif- a difference big difference yeah i mean i i can tell you like that tap tempo thing that like totally changed my life as far as my ability to play to a click track and so you might you might want to try it out um and see i mean i'm sure there's a million versions of it now i mean that was like 20 years ago or whatever yeah Uh, how much do you need to refine like that technology (laughs) yeah right (laughs) count time 20 years ago it probably still does a good job yeah yeah i mean I still am using Windows XP and I'm recording on Sonic Foundry Acid version three from 1998 versus like, I think like they did like one through 10 or whatever. And then they went into letters and then they went back into numbers. And I think maybe they went back into letters again, but um, I'm still sitting on this 1998 one that it's, it is pretty primitive um, compared to a lot of, a lot of things that people use, but it's like, it's where I'm at as far as it being a, a pretty good medium place between modern modern technology and four track. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's working for you. Yeah. You know, I'm still mastering with uh, the Sonic Foundry Sound Forge from 2000, probably 2000 or so. maybe it's 98 also. I don't know. I mean it's it's weird because sometimes like when i for a while people were paying me to master their records and they would be asking about what equipment i'm using and i tell them like this is what i'm using and they're like oh i thought you'd be using something like da, 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 da. i'm like i'm like this was the industry standard from 1997 to 2000 if you don't think that any records in those three years came out that sounded good then you probably shouldn't work with me huh yeah, yeah. It gets weird. A lot of times you're not you're not hiring somebody for their equipment usually, you know what I mean? You're hiring them because of their ideas, you know? Yeah, I think so. Or or what else they've worked on. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, what they what you've heard them what you've heard them do that you think 
work. What uh, else worked on and what's in your your ability to pay? A guy that I've worked with, he was touring this other person's studio and that person is solely a mas- mastering engineer. It's all she does. And she had done some stuff that I like and I emailed for her quote, her rate sheet, and it came back um, like her assistant or whatever just emailed the sheet back to me and I was like, okay, yeah, um, that's why, <laughs> that's why she's who she is because more than I've ever, probably ever will pay for mastering. It was like on the order of like per track, it would cost what it would cost me to hire who I do to do a full album, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the scars bring hope record got mastered by, I don't I, I don't know the guy. I can't even remember his name because I don't care. Mm-hmm. But he 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 mastered some records that have Grammys and stuff. Yeah, and that record it was really good. I mean, I'm not saying it's just the mastering, but I, um, I remember that one sounding really nice. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I did with Brian McKenzie, and it's like the only one where it's you know substantial amount of comping of vocal tracks and like you know it was in a. It was in more or less a real studio in the the way that you know when you're a kid you you think these studios are going to be these beautiful crazy things and then uh, and then in reality there's a lot of really good studios that it's like part of a shitty strip mall mm-hmm. you know? and so it it's like part of it was recorded in in the studio that's part of a strip mall and. Part of it was recorded in uh, this uh, this other other engineer's house, um, just because like that guy he had a um, a B three organ and a piano and stuff. Oh, cool! It made, yeah. made more sense for recording things like that there. That record really like changed things for me as far as like okay, this is what I'm actually capable of doing. Right. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, and like on and off, I do think about trying to do another Remora record, but it's just like nobody's asking for it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about Rivulet stuff lately. It's kind of like I don't have any pressure from a label or booking agents or anything. Nobody's, I don't owe anybody a record, like not on contract or any bullshit like that. So, it's really up to me, like if and when I ever feel like I want to do it. So I don't know. That's maybe kind of depressing, but it's also kind of freeing. Like I'm, I'm only gonna put something out if I really feel I have something to say, and I just don't right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean because it's just I do feel like the stuff I'm doing with the dance records is cool. I really, I don't know if you even listened to the Undermasks record that I did. It like got so little attention. I honestly was like, "Oh, this is gonna be the thing that uh, that people pay attention to." Because you know? I, I I liked that that project too because it uh it was like I discovered this formula for making music where it was like, "Oh, so this band could exist without me even as a main member." Mm-hmm. You know, if I just give the formula over. Right. So I thought that was really cool about it, but then it's like we played one show as the trio we were you know like it was like you know i wrote all the pieces i sent them to the two guys uh 
me and Roland practiced in the same room once, then me, Roland, and Martin practiced in the same room once, then we played a live show, and then we um then we recorded an album all like within a week. Wow. And I felt like I felt like that was like a that was really a cool way to kind of do a thing where you know it it kind of like still feels fresh you know Mm -hmm. because a lot of times by the time it's recorded you know it's like sounds more controlled and like you know it's just not as spontaneous and everything right but you were still kind of in that pocket where you you did it all like within a week so it was all fresh yeah exactly so you know, and like I have some parts for us to potentially do uh, another one, but you know, working with other people, sometimes it's like figuring out schedules and like and everything. I'm married, I have a kid, I have multiple businesses, I'm working a day job. And it's just yeah. like the only reason I do still do music is because. Like, I kind of, like, feel like I don't even have a choice or whatever. It's just, like, asking somebody to, like, you know, like, to say it's, like, asking somebody to stop eating or something is a little a little too harsh, but it's... Yeah, I get I get that. I mean, it's it's just, like, intrinsic to who you are. It's like, yeah, I get that. For me, it's more... Lately, it's... I don't know. I feel like I go through these phases where I'm just collecting... Like, I'm really heavy into listening right now. Like, just listening to all tons of stuff, like old and new, and keeping notes. And and then at some point, like, I will, my brain or whatever will have connected enough material that I'll start to, like, process that all into something. But um, that's just the other side of it. You know what I mean? One side is, like, the creative output side, but the other part is, like, you have to feed or at least I do, I have to feed myself new information, whether it's, it is actually new or it's just old that I haven't heard or read or watched before. So I'm more heavily in that phase right now where I'm just really taking a bunch of stuff in and actually yeah. just working on myself as a person and not really worrying about the rest of it. Just trying, I mean, just legitimately trying to be a better person in the world you know, that doesn't make my immediate circle worse because I'm in it. I hear you. Just keep in touch, man. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Thanks. Take care.